Well, let's pray before we begin. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today's sermon, if you haven't figured it out, is all about glory. You know, a child can begin, and usually does, <clears throat> begin using words before uh, the full meaning of it, especially when we talk about abstracting. Before the, its meaning is very clear to them, and then over time, these things start to solidify. And But some things are just difficult to define. And our brain never gets around to quite being able to form our own definitions. And, and then we just kind of learn when to use those words. When is it appropriate to use that word? What sort of sentence does it fit in? But it, it remains very vague to us. And teachers of the church, we try to battle against this. We, we want the faith to be clear to everybody so we can be grounded in the truth. And glory is definitely one of these types of words. I became very frustrated with Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, generally, I know what that means, but just the words, like, what is, what is he saying? Fall short of the glory of God. What, what does that mean? Am I supposed to be glorious like God? And so, I'm trying to clarify these things. That's what we're going to do today. And uh, so here's my outline. We're, we're going to talk about how we were made for God's glory. And how we have fallen short of that glory. And we really won't have time for the third point. So maybe I can summarize it really quickly. That we are being glorified. So first off, you were made for God's glory. The Hebrew word for glory is based upon the root meaning weight. And then the Greek word for glory is based upon the root meaning radiance, brightness. And uh, we get all sorts of synonyms for glory, including the two I just mentioned, fame, importance, honor. It's really difficult to see how these all go together, what's the connection between them. But I'm going, to, I'm going to lean pretty heavily on this idea of weightiness. And it's even for the New Testament writers who are writing in Greek, the Hebrew understanding of weight keeps popping up uh, in, in what they talk about. I'm, my definition of glory is essentially the same as Sam, so that works out well. That uh, glory is the impressiveness of something which draws us toward it. So I'm trying to bring in that idea of weight. That you know that the bigger something is, the more massive it is, the more gravity it has. So the Earth has a lot of gravity. Uh, this bottle cap actually has gravity, but it's so little that we don't even notice. And you know, it, it wants to go to the Earth, right? So because the Earth is heavy, that weight. So um, glory is weightiness, significance. Now, fame is one of the, the primary ways that Hebrew and Greek word, word is translated, and that really bothered me in seminarios because I saw that, and I thought I would have never picked that word if I was trying to explain glory to somebody. But uh, fame is kind of has its own type of gravity. And you, people 
regularly come in late to the worship service and maybe if you're one of the more curious people every time you hear a little rustling you, you turn around to see who it is or maybe you're looking for a friend but then you turn right back around and get back to paying attention uh, but imagine that one day you hear some rustling in the back and then it's President Joe Biden and the Secret Service coming in. Um, now you do a double take and now you're staring, which makes some other people stare, and you probably start elbowing the people around you. What's he doing? And now, I mean, you can almost sense, you imagine every head looking back there, and then I forget what I'm talking about. You can, you can see how there's weightiness to fame, and then everyone's looking and wondering what exactly is happening here. Um, that's kind of how I relate those two ideas. Glory can also be the thing that makes something impressive. It's the icing on the cake. Or maybe it's the ice cream on the icing on the cake. Proverbs 20, 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. If you need advice, do not go to a young man. But if you need chairs moved in the sanctuary, or maybe you got something stuck up in a tree, you need someone foolish enough to, to scale it. But if you need life advice, you go to somebody with gray hair, somebody with some experience. One of the men or women of the church who lived a long time and you tell them what's going on. So we have the impressiveness, but then you get to the glory of God. And that's a little more confusing because, you know, Everything about God is impressive, right? Is, is that not true? So, one way that the glory of God is used is very in line with this idea of radiance. You have these glowing visions, this appearance of God. You have this glory cloud, this bright cloud that envelops the tabernacle. Or uh, Moses begging for it to be able to see God's glory. And then his face shines with light. Or the transfiguration, when Jesus appears just indescribably white and bright. We have this, this you know, if you have something that bright, then kind of like fame, kind of draws your attention to it. But that's not, that's not the only way God's glory is used. It's not only radiance. And, and so I'm going to rely on John Piper here um, to kind of get his explanation, which I thought was pretty helpful. So he defines the holiness of God as the value of God. And if, if you're wanting to follow along, you can look at Isaiah 6 with me. So, you know, we're used to thinking, uh, probably you define the holiness of God as his separateness, his otherness, how he's different than us. But um, he defines it, his definition is the infinite value of God. So, you know, clearly he's different than us because he's infinitely valued. That's valuable. That's what sets him apart. And then in Isaiah 6, 2 through 4, well, 1 through, 1 through 4, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy. So as Piper says, valuable, valuable, valuable. This is interesting. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is full of his holiness, right? Well, that's not what it says. Holy, holy, holy. 
all the earth is full of his glory. So what Piper says is that God's glory is the going public of his infinite work. That makes good sense to me. And it's not just these bright visions, but it's everything. It's the bottle cap I dropped, made of some special polymer that won't poison. And, and somebody is a genius, and, and they understand this. And, 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 and when, when they, if they're a believer, when they get deep into these molecules, they see the handiwork of God, and they're impressed with God. Seemingly dull, mundane things are full of God's glory. And about halfway through college, it really hit me where I was like, well, it's great to be able to learn things. Because God made the world. And when I learn things, I see his, his glory. And, you know, it's not really obvious. And then, and then we get microscopes and we can see inside cells. And, you know, there's like every cell has these millions of little molecular robots. I mean, literally little legs that carry proteins. And it's, it's just bizarre. And God made it all. And you don't even, he's okay with us not seeing it for thousands of years. And then finally being able to figure it out and say, wow. God is really great. God is impressive. And it's, it's all there. Sometimes they have to work for it. Uh, I always wondered about people who actually understood music and music theory. I bet they really see God's glory in that. I wish I could too. But one of the places where it's really blatant, where it's really obvious, is the heavens and the sky. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Sky, this giant billboard that God just spread out. And all day long, it just shouts out to us God is big, and God is huge, and, and God is strong, and God is good. Sometimes it screams, God is angry. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But it's there, and it's shouting out God's impressiveness and his weightiness. And it's like therapy to me, because I can be uh, weighed down by all sorts of trouble. I'm tired, going into work, thinking about all the ways that I'm going to not be able to you know, reach the expectations of my employer and all the things that might be breaking at home and, and just weighing me down. That's another way that glory is used. Weighting me down. And then I just happen to think, oh, I haven't looked up this morning, and then I see the sky. And I remember God's goodness, and I remember God's goodness, and I remember his strength, and then all that other stuff things seems not so not so weighty. They kind of float into their proper orbit around God's glory. And and it's it's a powerful experience. And God just that's something that God just put there for us to see. Of course, we Presbyterians know that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God, this, this, there's different ways you can define the verb, but one way is to show God's glory, to act as if He is valuable, as, as if He is as significant as He actually is, to try to make Him famous, to, to um, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's glorifying God is to honor God. Of course, Job glorified God in his sufferings. 
He has this incredible loss. He loses all ten of his children in one day. And then his servants, who I assume a lot of them he was pretty close to and fond of, and his, um, all his possessions. Then later on, he loses his health. And Job wants to have an out with God. He wants to have, he's ready to have a word with God. Because it, it really seems like God is picking on him. And when God shows up, he doesn't give Job a reason for all the things that he does. What he gives Job is an experience of himself. He lets Job see his weight, his importance, his value. And this doesn't, we're not told this takes away Job's pain. But Job's pain can move to the periphery. And God's glory can put it in perspective. Job 42, 5 and 6. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's this experience of God that puts everything in perspective. We do not glorify God unless everything else becomes less significant than Him. And this often happens in suffering. Often we are reoriented or, or we, we reveal where our true, what we really value. Is it the, what does that hashtag blessed t-shirt mean? Is it your... You're happy about all the good things he gives you, but you'd be, but that's, that's your whole world, or, or is he your world? Is he your satisfaction? Not only do bad things become less significant, though, but good things as well. As Paul said in Philippians 3, 5 through 7, he's talking about his glory on a human scale, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. All those good things in your education, and you're so proud of your family, and you've got you know, your haircuts on fleek, and you, you've got everything going for you. And compared to knowing Christ, it's just it's whatever. Not that. Point number two, you've fallen short of the glory of God. So have I. So back to Belshazzar, finally. He has a big banquet with a thousand lords. And uh, he's feeling pretty good about himself. So I'm gonna drink, I'm gonna drink from God's cup. Check it out. Pretty impressive, ain't it? Um, and then this hand appears and it's writing in plaster the wall. So that's that gets everybody. Everybody lose their mind over that, obviously. And then no one can understand what it's saying. And so that gets everybody freaked out again. And none of the wise men can figure it out. And finally, the queen has some wisdom for Belshazzar. And uh, he brings in Daniel. And part of this message that God has written on the wall is you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Go listen to the Johnny Cash song this afternoon. You've been waiting the bounce and found wanting, and he died that night. Belshazzar very blatantly compared himself 
to God. I can, I'm pretty impressive, you know. That God who turned my dad into an ox. Yeah, I can drink from this cup. Anybody else want to sip from this magic cup? It's pretty cool. I've got these. Keep them in a room back there. Think about the balance. You know, they're just talking about a bathroom scale. They didn't have that back then. They're talking about a balance. Balance is compared, you know, greater than, less than, equal to. That's what they do. And Belshazzar had already made the comparison to God. And God says, okay, yeah, let's weigh these things out. Let's take you and your fancy clothes and all your, your lords and your concubines put you on a scale next to me. And you're nothing. You're nothing. There's nothing compared to God. Failed the test, and so he had to die. This, this to me, this is the text that makes sense of Romans 3, 23. So Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all that sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have been doing, and I have been doing, this Belshazzar thing every day. You give yourself attention. You know, if somebody insults you, how long does it take to recover from this? I mean, the shock, the shock that someone would think that I'm an idiot. It's just, it's crazy. How could they, how could they say that to me, to me of all people? And, and then, and then, if you make a mistake, if I, if I make a mistake, how long does it take us to recover? As if, I mean, we were just so impressive. And then I slipped on my words in front of everybody. I just, I just don't know how I can go back to work and face these people. We, as if we really matter that much in the grand scheme of things. Everyone else, they're going home. You know, to, to think about how you mispronounce that word. And then we don't give the fault to God. We build around our lives around things that don't matter. It's a job, it's sports, it's you know, having the best family. And God takes us and He takes all our little things that we think are so weighty and He puts them in a scale and He says, You need. You've been found wanting. Why did you think these things were as significant as you thought they were? God is what matters. God is infinitely different. And when you stand on those scales by yourself, then you're, you're sent to hell. You deserve hell. And which begs the question, what's the big deal? I mean, that's the question for me. I mean, hell is the weighty reality. The infinite wrath of God. What's the big deal? I'm just a guy trying to live my life, trying to provide for my family. You know, I need to just relax. And, and you know, I enjoy I enjoy the same thing that everybody else enjoys. I'm just living my life, relaxing on the weekends, and, and you're telling me, because just I'm, I'm just a normal person, that, and because I'm not obsessed with this God of yours, that I, I deserve hell. So 
Talk about a weighty pill to swallow. But the fact that we cannot see the significance of God, the fact that we cannot fathom that disregarding His glory actually matters that much, is the problem. That's us falling short of the glory of God. We, we basically, we can see anything as significant except for what is actually significant. You know, it's, it's a God's mercy that we were not all given the power to strike people down by lightning. Otherwise, there would be very few people left on earth. Because every time somebody just looked at us wrong, we would be doing it. We'd be striking them dead. And, you know, if somebody tells us, well, there's this country over there across the world where they kick puppies. I'm like, well, nuke these people. You don't do that to puppies. Like, we, we can see the need for wrath, except for in the one place where it's actually really, 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 really deserved, which is the glory of God. As C.S. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. It's the incongruity between what we value and what's actually value, valuable that will damn us outside of Christ. But praise be to God. Paul goes on, but you are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The problem in the world is that God is not glorified. So the solution to that problem will not be anything that allows man to continue thinking he's so important and so impressive. The solution to that problem will be something that glorifies God. The way of salvation has to be something that only God can be, be praised for, be glorified for. John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus, God's son, before he, before he was Jesus, before he was um, the God-man, he, he was eternally sharing, eternally glorious, sharing the glory of the Father and the Spirit. And he stepped away from that glory to become a man. So that he could glorify God. So that he could show God's value, not with radiant light, but in the way that we were meant to show his value, with by centering our life on God. Jesus said, uh, John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' mind, Jesus' treasure, Jesus' fixation was how wonderful and how powerful and how important 
his father was. Nothing could compare. Everything else fell into orbit around that center. And he went to the cross to pay for all the times when we do not, when we do not value God as we should. And the irony and the wonder is that the place of human cruelty and shame becomes a place of glory. John 12, 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Draw all people to myself. You hear that idea of gravity. This place where he's held up for shame becomes this thing that, is, that shows God's value so incredibly clearly that for 2,000 years it's been ever so slowly drawing the nations to himself. And in the cross, we see that God's wrath is really, truly amazing. And God's love is so beautiful. And his justice is so right, so good. His mercy is so sweet. We see that in the cross. Jesus rises with a glorified body. His body's normal human body has been made more impressive, as ours will be one day when we see him. And he goes and sits at the right hand of the Father. And now he's, so as a man he gets to, we have a, a human being who actually shares in the glory of God. And also, Jesus is sharing in the glory for what he has done, what he's accomplished, being the savior of sinners. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the Father is glorified through the Son. It would be like somewhere there's some guy trying to get a good seat at a restaurant. And they're like, hey, you know, we don't see your name on the reservation. And say, well, maybe you should look under Bruno Mars's father. And you're like, you know, he, his son's become so famous that well, I don't need my own name. I'll be glorified through him. That's the, the Father, you know, doesn't worry about the name Yahweh in the New Testament. He's happy for eternity to be known as the Father of Jesus Christ. That's his glory. The glory of old men is their, uh, glory of old men is their children. The glory of children is their father. So they share that glory. Well, I'm going to summarize here my last point. Looking at Psalm 1, 3, and 4. Talking about the righteous. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff. The wind drives away. So we know that when Christ appears, that we'll be glorified with him. We'll be transformed. We will be made We'll be able to stand in the presence of the full radiance of God. But right now, we're already becoming glorious. 
from one degree of glory to another. And I, I just think it's interesting, the fact that if you stand on the moon, you can jump like six times as high as you can jump on the earth. And when you're on something that's light, then you yourself are light. But when we stand on the one who's truly weighty, then we become weighty. And those who do not know God, they're like chaff, little flakes of uh, bits of the shell of a wheat husk that, you know, if I set one up here, just the flow of air in the room would move it around. That's what we're like when we're not, we are not grounded in something weighty. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that natural man is blown so easily to every horrible idea that comes along. But if we are grounded in Christ, grounded in his work, then we will be unmovable. And we're often shocked that, that, that they're shocked that we really believe the Bible. And we're like, well, y'all just started believing that you should castrate boys because it's something you read online about gender. You believe that, let's start believing it like two minutes ago, and now you're freaked out about what we believe? And, and yes, yes they are, because they're being blown around. And when you're getting swept that way, and then this, this being just somehow stays right there, it's pretty offensive. But when we do that, we're calling attention to God's weight and God's power. And so, we are becoming more glorious. We shouldn't be mad at the, those who don't know God being like chaff, because eventually chaff gets thrown into the fire. We should pity them, we should be praying for them. We, we though, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, until one day we're resurrected, glorified bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable, what is sown in dis dishonor, it is raised in glory. And because of that, a final exhortation from that same chapter, 1 Corinthians. Because we will be transformed, and we are being transformed, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be immovable because you are grounded in the only thing, the only one that truly matters. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. When have we ever glorified you as we should? Thank you for forgiving us in Christ for the billions of slights against your worthiness. Thank you for giving us your spirit so that we can begin to see your significance, placing our entire lives in orbit around your glory. Keep us from blowing away. Keep us grounded in Christ until the day when we can behold your glory and share in it forever. Amen.